Last week I kind of started this, and it's, it's not going to be a long series. We're taking a little short break from uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're, we're going to be going through starting in Mark 10 when we start back probably in April. But I just titled this little series called Church Matters, and it's kind of got a double meaning there. There are church matters, and then it's because church matters, amen? <laughs> church does matter. And then there are matters of the church that, that we need to be aware of. So today, I wanted to start um, in earnest today at the beginning. So I begin to look at that, and, and it's real simple. This is a great, if, if you're ever wondering, how do I put my sermons together? There's no magic to it. But one of the things I do like to do if I'm doing something like this is I just typed in the word church into a search engine that I have with some software and pull it up. And guess where the first place the church is mentioned in the New Testament? It's in Matthew 16. So if you want to find your way there with me, I want to go back to the very first time we see this word or this concept or this idea of church mentioned in Scripture. And, and, and I, I think we're very familiar with the term church. And when I say church... What do you think of? Yeah. What? Coming to church. You think because you're Wildwood people, you think of this context, right? Or wherever it is that you worship regularly. This is what we think of because it's what we experience and what we know. Right? You with me? Uh, and I will be giving you more information on this I'm, I'm, I'm this resource that I'm reading right now, but um, I got a book this week called The Great De-Churching, and it's a, it's a very uh, in-depth study of what has happened to the church, specifically in America, United States of America, over the last 25 years. Um, and I think we... We've seen it in microcosm here, because I could identify a few people that would fit into that category that are, uh, were a part of us and are no longer a part of us, even though they're right here. Uh, but here's, there was a line in that book that I had to stop and reread several times, because I said, surely this is not right. And they have researched everything very well and footnoted it and documented, so I went to the back and looked up some of that information, and it does appear to be true. Listen to this. Listen to this statement. He said this. He said, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than have become Christians starting with the first great awakening through the second great awakening and through all of the Billy Graham crusades combined. I want you to hear that again. Why don't you hear that again? More people have left the church in the last 25 years. 40 million, by the way. And they've done meticulous research. 40 million people who used to, who attended church faithfully in the past have now left the church in the last 25 years. More people have left in the last 25 years than were then came to Christ and claimed to be a Christian as a result of the first great awakening, second great awakening, all the way through all of the Billy Graham 
crusades throughout his ministry. You take that whole number of people saved and more have left the church in the last 25 years than that whole number total. Right? Just, just stop and ponder that for a moment. And then the rest of the book, honestly, um, asks and answers the question, who are these people? Why have they left? And what is the path forward? But I just wanted to give you that little bit of a uh, disturbing information. It disturbed me when I read it. And yet we have experienced that right here, even in very recent days. Why is that? At the end of the day, I think you would agree with me, um, a lot has changed in those 25 years. Haven't they? I remember as a little boy coming up in the church, you know who the most revered person in town was? Was not the mayor. And it was not the chief of police. It was the pastor. I mean, there was God and then Pastor McLean. <laughs> I mean, like, literally. True. And you remember, you remember Pastor McLean? Yeah. Um, we held them in high esteem. Today, when someone asks me, what do I do? And I tell them, I'm a pastor. And brother, you, you, you've probably experienced this too. We don't get that same response, do we? Instead of people looking at us and saying, wow, this is someone that I can respect and, and, and maybe I can get some help from. We are looked at today when fi they find out we're a pastor with suspect. It, it has ceased to be an honorable position. And there's reasons for that. And not all of those reasons are, are illegitimate either, I must say. What has happened over those 25 years? Well, at the end of the day, 40 million people who used to be just like you are now at home. The church has ceased to be important. It used to be the church was our reason for missing everything else. Today, everything else is our reason for missing church. A child has a runny nose and apparently it takes the entire family to stay home and blow it. Brothers and sisters, that used to be funny, but it's not funny anymore. Um, something has happened. So I want to take you all the way back to the beginning and show you the, the, what, why it's so important initially. We've got to understand what is the church which is where we're ultimately going to go. But I want to take you all the way back to a discussion that Jesus had with his inner circle, his 12, as they were walking down a dusty road. By the way, most of Jesus' teaching that's recorded happens as they're walking down the road. It's doing life together in the normal every day. So that's all they're doing. They're, they're outside of Philippi, and Jesus, they're walking, and look what happens in verse number 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's a simple question, isn't it? What's the word on the street, guys? What are you hearing? And he gave them some answer. What are people saying? Now, his ministry had been going for about two and a half years at this point. He's almost done. Jerusalem and the cross 
is in his near future, just a few months away, as Jesus asks this question. And I want you to, I want you to think about, lest we be discouraged, I want you to think about this for a minute. Two and a half years of amazing ministry, right? We've been, we've been, traveling, we've, we've been traveling with Mark through Mark's gospel. We're right about here. We're just past this little section now. A lot of stuff happened in those two and a half years, right? Some pretty wild things. 5,000 people got fed with a Happy Meal. Uh, Jesus, and then after that, Jesus walks on the water, right? Uh, blind people are healed. The dead are raised. Uh, the lame are made to walk. Lepers are cleansed. And demon-possessed people are made whole. Lots of amazing things. And yet, with all of that, the majority of the crowd still didn't understand who Jesus was. Because look at the answers. What's the word on the street, fellas? Who do people say that I am? Verse 14. So they say, some say John the Baptist. Now, what do we know had already happened with John the Baptist at this point? He was beheaded. And by the way, John the Baptist was... Uh, Jesus' cousin. And so they probably grew up together and had a relationship there. Some say John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist resurrected. And there's a reason for that because they both preach the same message. Repent and believe the good news and follow the Messiah. Others, some Elijah. Now, why would they say this guy's Elijah. Anyone remember what happened to Elijah? Huh? Yeah, he never died. Right? He was taken up in the fiery chariot. So they said, someone said, well, you know, Elijah went, maybe you're him come back. And others, Jeremiah. Now, or one of the prophets. Why? What do you know about Jeremiah? What's he called? That's it. The weeping prophet. What does that tell you about the tenor or the tone of a lot of Jesus' teaching? Yeah, there was a tenderness there. And also Jesus was telling the truth. It wasn't all good news, right, for people. At the end of the day, basically after two and a half years of miraculous ministry, the crowd still wasn't sure and were divided on who Jesus is. And by the way, folks, that hadn't changed one bit today. You ask the world out there, you ask people outside the church, say, who is Jesus? You're going to get answers like that. You're not even going to get answers that good anymore. What you're going to hear is that he was a good man or a moral teacher. And I like what um, C.S. Lewis said. He said, um, ultimately, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a Lord. But, he, but uh, he, he can't be anything less than one of those. You've got three choices. He was a crazy man. Or he wasn't a crazy man and was a deceiver. Or he was who he said he was. So then Jesus gets down to brass tacks with them in verse number 15. If you look at it. And he said to them, but who do what? You. Who do you say that I am? You see, because at the end of the day, I guess it really doesn't matter what your neighbor says. It doesn't matter what... Your parents say it doesn't matter what your spouse says about Jesus. At the end of the day, what matters is who do you say Jesus is? Now, 
these 12 men had lived very close with Jesus in the last two and a half years. They not only saw all of the miracles he performed, they had a front row seat. They were passing out the pieces of the fish and the bread that just kept multiplying with no scientific sense whatsoever. They had a front row seat to all of it. And Jesus says, now because of that, do, do, do you have a different answer than the crowd? Do you have, as the committed follower, my committed followers, is your answer as to my identity different than that of the crowd? And that's where we're going to pick it up today, is in verse number 16. I want you to see their answer. You say, now, wait, what do you mean their answer? Only Simon Peter answers. Well, Simon Peter uh, was really the spokesman for all the disciples. So the first thing I want you to see, and if you have your little listening sheet there, you want to fill that out today, I want you to see the first R is the response in verse number 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I want you to notice something, first of all, in this response. Now this is Matthew writing. What do we know about Matthew? Tax collector, right? Which means the rest of the disciples would have thought what about him initially? Not happy feelings, <laughs> right? They hated this guy. If you look at the band of disciples, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. These people should have been slitting each other's throats at night. And then he's dealing with these hardcore fishermen. You say, well, what's that like today? They were rednecks. The fishermen were the rednecks of their day. I mean, if it was here, they, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they'd have lived right here in Macon, Georgia. I mean, they were hardcore country boys. And, and they knew how to fight, and they weren't afraid to fight. We see that. Not very good with a sword. We see Peter missed uh, the guy's head and hits his ear uh, later on when they come to get Jesus. But a fighter and not afraid, to, not afraid to die either, right? These are some pretty wild people. But Matthew's kind of the most cultured of all of them. He's a tax collector, which means even though he was a, a, a Jewish man, he was a traitor. And some of the disciples were what's called zealots, which means they were like the terrorists in Israel fighting against Rome. A zealot and a tax collector? Yeah. But as a tax collector, what do you think he would be good at? Math. And also what? And with math, math is numbers, and numbers have to be accurate, especially if you're working for the Romans. You, you kind of want to be accurate, right? Keep good books. Matthew's going Matthew's to have it be accurate and have, have detail. Notice what Matthew calls him. He calls him Simon and Peter, right? He uses his, his official name uh, that he was given at birth uh, just to make sure you know because who, who we're talking about. So Simon Peter answers and here's his response. You, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the way, folks, that's the right answer. That's it. And I don't think Peter at this point realized how right he was. Matter of fact, we know he didn't because a few verses later, uh, <clears throat> he rebukes Jesus and Jesus has to set him straight. <clears throat> but he says, let me tell you who we believe you to be. 
And we do not appreciate this as, as good Gentiles today. The first thing he says is, you are the what, church? Christ. Now, I've taught you this over the years, so I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but, but Jesus and Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a messianic title. It is, it is saying, literally mean, the word Christ means Messiah, which again, I understand to good Gentiles like you and I, that doesn't carry a lot of weight or meaning. But this word, and it's not a perfect synonym, but it, for us it might work a little better. It's the word king. But not just any king. Notice it says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the king. What does that mean? It means the anointed one, the one that was promised actually all the way back in Genesis and chapter number three. This is, you are the one, the promised one from the very beginning of the narrative of human history when God says to Eve, you are going to have a son and out of that son is, is going to have his heel bruised by the serpent. But what is he going to do? That heel is going to crush the serpent's head. That was the first prophecy of the coming Messiah, the coming king. Later, it would, we would have the term the Christ. And in Jewish understanding, that word would carry a lot of weight. What Peter was saying, if he was wrong, was treason and blasphemy. He said, Jesus, we know exactly who you are. You're the one we have hoped for. You're the one we have prayed for. You are the anointed one, literally what that word means. Who do you anoint? You anoint a king. Kings are anointed as a sign of God's sovereign choice over them to rule the nation. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now we do know that Peter did not understand everything that he was saying. He thought Jesus was coming to bring and inaugurate an earthly kingdom when really he was coming to inaugurate a spiritual kingdom that would have an earthly effect. And a far greater earthly effect than had Jesus just set up a minimal earthly kingdom. But he says, you are the Christ. But he goes on to say, he, he's going to now help us understand what Christ means. What that means, the anointed one. He's going to qualify his response. You are the Christ. And by that I mean this, what? The son of the living God. You are the son of of God. This is a huge statement here. This statement has literally changed history. This statement right here, the reality of your adherence to this statement or your rejection of this statement will literally determine your eternity and your eternal destiny. Because I want to tell you something today. Jesus is the king. He is the anointed one. And you will bow here or you will bow later. You bow here. You serve him here. You pledge your allegiance to him here. You, he becomes your king now. Then he is your king for all of eternity. You, 
you declare him king later, after the end of the age or at the end of your life, and he becomes your judge. This statement is massive. I want you to see the revelation in verse 17. So Peter gets it right. One of the few times in the Gospels that Peter gets it right. <laughs> and we're going to see Peter gets it wrong in the next, in the next paragraph. They say Peter's uh, philosophy was ready, fire, aim. Uh, I went, read one commentator said Peter must have had peppermint socks because he had his feet in his mouth all the time. Um, which was true. But this time Peter got it right. Look at Jesus' revelation here. Jesus answered him and said to him, verse 17, now notice the, the official name he uses. He said, blessed are you Simon, there's that word Simon again, Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now Bar means son of. Right? So he's saying, Peter, the son of, of Jonah, you are blessed. Actually, he calls him Simon. Simon was his birth name. Peter was the name Jesus gave him. That was his nickname. <coughs> and that's going to be important here in a second. He said, boys, Simon, son of Jonah, official name. It's like when you remember when you got in trouble and your mother called you. Boy, if my mom opened that door and said, Paul, John, Jettle, you get down here right now, I was in trouble. Uh, you know, you, mom adds the middle name, it's official. So, so this, is what, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's making it official. Simon, son of Jonah, birth name. He said, blessed are you. Why, why are you blessed? Because you got the right answer? No. Look, look at why he's blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come to this on your own resources. You weren't smart enough to figure this out. Someone didn't tell you. This, this, this revelation, this statement, this recognizing of who I am didn't come from you. And listen, this is so crazy in our thinking today. And because it didn't come from you, you're blessed. That doesn't make any sense. Well, we've got to read the rest of it. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But what? My Father, who is where? In heaven. Now, what did he say? Look at, look, at, look at Peter's statement. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus is affirming Peter's qualification of the Messiah here by saying, my Father, because I'm the Son of God who is in heaven. Why is this a blessing? Why is Peter specifically blessed here? Not because Peter got it right. Not because Peter figured out who Jesus was by, by adding up all of the dots and, and, and connecting them all and saying, oh, you know what, you must be the Messiah. No, don't miss it. He's blessed because God himself opened Peter's understanding, opened his eyes to see Jesus for who he really was. And I want to say to you today, that's exactly what needs to happen to every single one of us. And until it does, you're going to remain blind. I promise you, if you ever wake up one day and realize how bad you really are, know that you are blessed because God has showed that to you. I've done that with all of my kids. 
Yeah, but God's blessed us with eight children. And uh, I remember one time we were headed to camp and Jack was little guy was with me in a truck and he says, he said, uh, Daddy, I want to be baptized. And we had just had a baptism service at the lake that Sunday before. And I said, you do? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you some questions. I said, are you a good boy or a bad boy? He goes, I'm a good boy. I said, you're not ready yet. <laughs> right? And I had a gospel conversation with my four-year-old. But I want him to realize, until you understand, until God himself breaks through your understanding and, and, and lets you see yourself from his point of view, unless God reveals that truth about you to yourself, you're not ready. But when he does, you're blessed. You see what's happening here? It's still true today. Now, in verse 18, I want to break this down into three sections, and I won't belabor the point. It all has to do with the church. I'm just going to read all of 18, and then I'm going to make a few comments here. Verse 18 says, And I also say to you. Now, my dad, Jesus said, You're blessed because my dad gave you that info. My dad's the one to open your eyes. But I also have something I want to say to you. You see what's happening here? So this is the second person of the Trinity. And I also say to you that you are what? Peter. That's a nickname that Jesus gave him. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the grave, or hell, shall not prevail against it. Now, the first thing I want you to see here in this first part, I just call this a recognition, uh, is this first part, and, and Jesus said, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, now in the English, we kind of miss this whole thing. We're, you're not going to see it in the English. The word, the word for Peter there is uh, the word Petros, which literally means rock, and, and, and this this word for rock is, is, is the word that depicts a, a very large boulder. Um, have you ever been, I know when we go to Kansas, we drive through Tennessee, I forget what route, there, is it 24 that we get off of? And as you're going up that mountain there, it's, you, you know you're going up. There's a sign on the one side, it says watch out for Falling rocks. I'm like, can we not fix that? Can we not fix rocks falling? Is there, you would think they could do something, right? But it's a concern because on this, they have cut through this mountainside, and some of that is like solid granite, but big chunks of that granite on occasion will break off and, and I guess land on the highway. I mean, it always scares me as I'm driving through there. Uh, what, what a horrible way to go, you would think, right? Uh, and that's the idea of this, this giant boulder that has broken off of this massive mountain. Does that make sense? That's what, that, that's what Peter's word means. And that's a nickname that Jesus gave him. Um, but, but notice this. He says, so you are this giant boulder. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the question is, and it's been argued over the centuries, what does he mean? When you say on this rock, the, the Catholic Church tells us that he's talking about Peter himself. On Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, on you I'm going to build my church. And from there they've taken the succession of popes, and that Peter was the first pope. 
and uh, all the popes come from Peter, and the church is built on Peter. I don't think that is correct. I think if we look at the text, we see something a little bit different. Because when it says there that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, that word rock is the word Petra. Petros, giant boulder, Petra, think granite mountain. So you're Peter, you're this boulder, and upon this mountain I will build my church. Well, those, Jesus is using a contrast, not a comparison. He's not going to build his church on a boulder. He's going to build it on the mountain. The mountain of what? The mountain, I think it's two things, of who Jesus is. Jesus himself in his identity and Peter's declaration of it. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. On that statement, that's what I'm going to build my church on. Anybody ever been to Stone Mountain just north of here? Uh, great. That's a big, that's a, I mean, they call it a mountain. Apparently, it's just, just the top part that's sticking out. There's more, they say there's much, much more underground you can't see. Kind of like an iceberg, right? They tell us that thing's solid granite. It's one giant mountain of rock. That's the word Petra here that's used. And Jesus is saying, on this, on this Petra, I will build my church. Not on this boulder, but on this mountain. What is the mountain? It is the, the revealing by the Father of who Jesus is. And oh, I want to tell you today. And what did Jesus say? On that <clears throat> giant mountain of who I truly am, I will build my church. It's a little, like I said, it's kind of a play on words. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ. And Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter. You see the same words there? You are, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Again, you don't see it in the English. I love this reality here too. I asked you when we started, when you hear the word church, what do you think of? You kind of think of this, right? Do you think that's what the disciples thought? Always bring scripture back to its historical context. What did the disciples think? This is, and interestingly enough, this is the very first place in the New Testament that this word, and I would even assert even, to even its basic context, contextual definition, shows up. This idea of church. Now it's a Greek word with two parts. It's called ekklesia from the uh, Greek word kaleo, which is to call. We kind of hear it in the Spanish better. Iglesia, ekklesia. It's to call, and ek just means out of. So it is a specific people called out of a segment of society called out of the rest of society. You with me? It's not everybody, it's some people. Very specific, the called out ones. That's this word church. Now what would the disciples have thought of when they heard this called out assembly? Would they have had this in mind? Probably not. Not yet. What in their context could they relate this to? No doubt, no doubt that they were called. They were called to leave everything. They left ships. Matthew left a profitable job, left his office, right? So they were called out. They knew what it was to be called to follow 
Jesus Christ, right? What would they understand to be a called out assembly? Was there such a thing in the Jewish culture? There actually was. There was the temple, which was where? Where was the temple church? Jerusalem. But places like Galilee, which is 70 miles north, they had not temples, but what did they call the meeting places of the Jews there? Synagogues, right? And what happened in the synagogue? The synagogue contained the ecclesia, the called out assembly of devout Jewish, specifically men that made up the leadership there, who were called out to serve Jehovah and obey his law. So they understood what this meant. But Jesus, notice what, what it says here. Um, and this is the third one. It's, it's, the, it's, the rec it's the responsibility, or the fourth one, the responsibility here. Notice what Jesus is saying. He says, on that mountain of stone that you have just said, as to my true identity, I will build my called out assembly. Now they understood what a called out assembly was. But notice what Jesus says. My church. Not what you have experienced thus far in your growing up years, but what you have experienced with me these last two and a half years. It's going to be something different. And whose responsibility is it for the growth of the church? What does he say? I will build my church. I am so glad this is Jesus' church and not mine. Uh, and I've been here, like I said, we're going on 24 years in this church. We've had some hard times, and some of you old-timers here remember some of those early hard times. We, we've had some church fights so over stupid things. Uh, a, a part of the stupid was me, because uh, I was young and foolish, and, and I, I didn't have a lot of sense, truthfully. Uh, but I remember one specific time and incident, and, and I just never could figure out why it got so crazy. Um, finally, the gentleman that was, was, was really the, the, the biggest person pushing for, I guess, my release from my job here, said this, this church, this is not your church. And I remember looking at him and saying, you are so right about that, and I am thrilled it's not my church. I said, but it isn't yours either. I said, the church belongs to Jesus, and he bought it with his own blood. I said, and you and I, we're just servants of that church. And that's, that's how I see myself. I don't own this church. I don't want to own this church. It's not my job to build the church. He said, I will build. Jesus has taken responsibility for his church, his ecclesia, his called out assembly. And it's not that you have to come. Listen, you get to come. If, it, if it's a have to, stay home. Become part of the D church. Apparently, it's the end thing to do in the last 25 years. Right? It's not a have to. It is a get to. It is a privilege. And on this rock of who Jesus really is, he is building this thing. And it's his church. It's not ours. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth that we can, we can just take to the bank. It's not our responsibility. Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Aren't you glad that the Lord is building this house? Aren't you glad that the Lord is building His church based on the correct understanding of who Jesus is? He is the anointed one, the Son of the living God. And He calls us out from the world. 
to live separate, to live different from the world, to be a shining light in a dark world. For his glory, as we sang about this morning. That's the responsibility. And I'm so glad that Jesus takes responsibility for his church. And he himself has laid the foundation for his church. Jot this down in your notes, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 11. The Bible says this, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul talking, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The word Jesus means rescuer. Christ means king. You know who laid the foundation of the church? King Jesus, who came to rescue you and I who make up the church. Amen. And you and I come to understand that Jesus is the king, the called, the Messiah, the anointed one, and he's the son of the living God. And on that reality and on that truth, he builds his church. And what a, what a, what a beautiful truth that is today. And then lastly, I want, <clears throat> I want you to see the results of it. I will build my church, and notice this, and when Jesus builds the church, the gates of Hades, what? It's not going to stand up to it. Shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell itself. Now that word there is Hades. Anyone know the Old Testament version of that word in Hebrew? Sheol. Yeah. So you got Sheol or Hades. It's the same thing. It's the place of the dead. Or it is oftentimes in the New Testament um, <clears throat> translated hell. Listen. There, are, there is the kingdom of darkness, and there's a kingdom of light, and they are at battle with each other. But here's the interesting thing about gates. A city was known for the strength of its gates. And, and why do we even have gates? Keep people out. It's exactly right, Dale. You got a gate into your yard to keep people out, or oftentimes to keep your dog in. <laughs> right? <laughs> But a city was known for the strength of its gates. And at night, they would close those gates and lock those gates. And the idea was, this is a safe place inside these gates. But let me tell you what. You didn't use your gates in a battle as an offensive weapon. Listen to me. Gates were always defensive. It was to keep the invaders out. And brothers and sisters, we've gotten the wrong idea about the battle that we're in. We think the church is on the defensive and hell is on the offense. But Jesus said, actually, fellas, it's the other way around. He said the gates of hell aren't going to be able to withstand the impact of the church and the gospel. Jesus said, we're going to win. And we're going to be on the offense, and we're going to literally go and attack the very gates of hell itself. What are we going to attack those gates with? With this reality right here. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that truth is going to destroy the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not withstand the reality of King Jesus and the gospel. And you and I don't have to do that. We get to be a part of that team. Amen? 
And we need to realize that, that we're on the winning side. The very gates of the most <clears throat> uh, a successful venture in human history, death and hell itself, are not going to be able to withstand the onslaught of the church of Jesus Christ. Man, I'm glad that's true. I'm glad that when I could stand over my dad's casket and say, you know what, this feels final, but this is not the end. God's got the last say, and he's, one day he's going to call his name, and that man's going to answer. And death will lose because the gates of hell are not going to withstand the reality of Peter's rocky statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two minutes, verse 19. And I will give you, now he is talking to Peter. <clears throat> and Peter, I'm going to give you some keys. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he says a weird thing to us. Verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Keep that to yourself right now, fellows. But, oddly or interestingly enough, at the end of this account, in Matthew 28, he turns that around. He says, okay, now's the time. All authority is mine. I was crucified. I was buried. I literally went to Hades itself. I preached to the captives that were in prison. And while Jesus was in that dark grave, while he was in Hades, he got some keys the keys of death and hell and the grave. And when he rose again, he, keys were always a picture of authority. He said, hey, guys, I'm not sending you out there with, with no authority. Here's some keys. <laughs> and I own these keys. All authority has been given to who? To me, Jesus says. Not just in heaven, but also where? On earth. You know what? The church needs to wake up to the reality that is still true. That has been true. That is still true. I get discouraged when I look at the world around me. Our, our culture has lost its mind. And if we're not careful, we get this crazy idea. You know what? We just need to keep in this holy huddle and pray that Jesus comes back and fixes all this. No. Absolutely not. He has all authority, not eventually, right now. And he's, and he's given us the keys, which represents his authority. And he doesn't even say, go do this in my name. He says, I'm going with you. The king himself with all the authority comes with us. We don't need to be hiding out, praying for Jesus to come fix it all. We need to be pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into every dark corner of this culture because it's all his. This is my father's world. We need to stop being afraid. We need to realize who we are. Hell has some gates and hell is afraid of the church today. And they've tricked us into being afraid of hell. But I want to say that hell is afraid of the church. Because of the reality of what the church is built on. Who Jesus is. So I want to ask you a question today in closing. Who do men say that I am? And not to be sacrilegious. Who cares? What the other people say. You know what's going to matter? One day you're going to stand before this risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to ask you, who do you say that I am? And you better have, been, have bowed to him before that great and terrible day of judgment. 
because it is coming and it's coming for you. I don't know about you. My goal for the rest of my life is to empty out hell. I want Lake Wildwood as a community to be a place that it's hard to go to hell from. I recently, some of the church leaders were involved in this too. We filled out a couple of surveys, just kind of looking at our church, trying to get an understanding of where we are and maybe <clears throat> how we can better engage this community. And, and, and it, I don't know if they had this, for me it was hard, it was difficult because there were some hard questions I'd have preferred not to answer. And the, and the hardest and most difficult question for me was the last one on the last survey. And it asked this question. It said, if your church closed tomorrow, if your church closed, if you locked the doors tomorrow, would your community be affected at all? Now, you people would be affected. Would your neighbor? Would the Lake Wildwood board be affected if we closed tomorrow? We got some work to do. We've swallowed some lies that we're on the defense when actually we're on the offense and we've already won. That's what the church is about. That's why we're called out. We're not just called out, we're called to take the message of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to every single household in Lake Wildwood. I couldn't help but think a few weeks ago when I did that service, as many of you were here, for that teenage boy that took his life in our woods right over here inside of Lake Wildwood. If we were to realize that power that we have and who we really are, could one of us have reached that family before that terrible conclusion? And by the way, there's that family still here and they're suffering. We still can reach them and we got that responsibility. I'm done playing defense. We're on the offense. And it's time to pick up the sword of the spirit, find your voice, and get out there and make it hard to go to hell from Lake Wildwood. Because Jesus is who he says he is. And he needs to be the anointed one and the son of the living God in my life, not just with my lips, but with my thoughts and with my actions every single day. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to respond to what you heard this morning. I know there's people here today that you know about God and, and, and you, know, you know who the historical Jesus is, but I, I doubt very sincerely you know him personally. I doubt very sincerely you have a personal relationship with him. Let me tell you what I doubt. I doubt very seriously that you've ever bowed the knee to anybody but yourself. And I'm calling you to do exactly that today. Bow your knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. To repent, that means to turn away from your sin. And hang on to Jesus. To believe that his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension is enough for God to forgive you of your sins and make you his son or daughter. I want you to do exactly that today, even as we're singing.
you do that. You come see me. Let's talk about that. And Christian today, stop playing defense. Stop. Wake up. It's all his. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the son of the living God. He is alive today. He beat death. And so will we. Wake up and realize who you are. It's time to scare hell because we're coming in the name of the living, victorious king. And that starts with your house and then your neighbors and then your representatives and then this state, this country, and eventually and ultimately the entire world. I can't wait until the glory of the Lord is known across the planet again. It's coming, and we get to be a part of it. You respond to the Lord's word today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and that he is building his called-out people. And that by, <laughs> not because we're smart or lucky to be in the right place to hear it, but Lord, just like you woke up Peter to that reality and Showed him that truth. You're doing that for some of us. People, I mean, Peter looks good compared to some of us. I can't believe you would do that for me. But you did. And you're still doing it. And Lord, I pray that you would call out some more today. Maybe even people in this room to bow their knee to you. To receive the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on their behalf. To, to renounce their sin. And receive their Savior. And to follow him the rest of their days. May you be glorified and honored as we behold you in Jesus' name. Amen.